Welcome to the About Sex Podcast, where we discuss... Gourmet cooking. Oh, well, I am kind of hungry. No, <laughs> we discuss sex. I know, I know it's sex. It's my always is, sex. My name is Josh, and with me, as always, is my lovely wife, Angela Skirtu. Tell us who you are, Angela. I'm a licensed marriage therapist and an ASEC certified sex therapist. And today, our guest is Leona Stuckey. She wrote the book, The Fog of Faith, Surviving My Impotent God. And yes, it was impotent. <laughs> that really caught me as, a, as the title, as interesting. So Hello. hi, Leona. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I am so delighted to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and who you are. What's your background, yeah. My background, okay. I have a bit of a complicated background, but I would say, first of all, that I am a psychotherapist. And so, Angela, I have a lot of identification with you. Yep. Um and second of all, I have had 30, over 30 years of doing psychotherapy and doing it from kind of a meaning perspective. I'm also a pastoral psychotherapist certified by the American Association of Pastoral Psychotherapists. And um, so that is, in fact, my ministry, but I am also an ordained minister with the Unitarian Universalist uh, Association. And so um, we, uh, we read your book, The um, Fog of Faith, and I guess um, I read it, and it was a very interesting book, so I'm so curious... Well, go on, tell us about the title. Yeah, tell us Wh- about that. Why does God have impotence? <laughs> <laughs> did he need to take um, Viagra for it? Yeah, did Viagra help? Yeah. <laughs> you all are too funny. <laughs> I know, I kind of used that word because I thought it might catch our attention. It definitely Oh, it sure did. we think of God as omnipotent mm-hmm. or <laughs> omnipotent. Right. So, um God was impotent because God was unable or unwilling to impact my the historical development of my own life and what I needed from God in that time, which I said very clearly in my book was the easiest thing for God to do because I wasn't expecting a miracle at all, not nothing even close, but just hoping for and praying for a little bit of influence to influence someone to move in a bit of a better direction for his life and for mine. And by that him, you're talking about your ex-husband. Um, yes. I can just point out one one part of the story was um, in the beginning when she wanted to break up with him, she had this sense that something bad was going to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, why don't you tell a little bit of the story? Or if you wanted to read, I don't know if you have your book close by, you could even read a portion out of it if you like. Well, yes, let me just say a few things about it. Um, I grew up as a Mennonite on a farm in Kansas. And that influenced in so many ways my experience of life, all my life. Um, And it's 
you know, had some absolutely positive and wonderful effects on my life. But one of the things that it, it influences is simply the way in which you perceive, the way in which I perceive um, all of reality. I put mm-hmm. it through a certain lens, the lens that I learned as a Mennonite, which is to try to understand in everything that happens what God is intending for us to know and to believe and to understand and to appreciate about God. Mm -hmm. And so when my boyfriend um, had a very tragic night of going, as we called it, over the edge, which meant having a break in which he was able, after being totally civil and kind for most of our dating relationship up to that point, which wasn't very long. Um, He tried to kill me and uh, certainly participated in some profoundly horrible experiences for me. How did he um, try to kill you? Which involved rape. Um, With a knife. With a knife? And, um, yes, and... Like, with, did it, what, what, what was going on when that happened? How did, how did he get to that point of trying to kill you? Uh, he, he realized that I wanted to break up with him. I see. And that triggered such a reaction in him, which is true overall of women who are caught in violent relationships. The relationship if it's going to become violent, becomes most violent when they are trying to leave. Right. And whether that's dating or it's in a marriage or it's in, you know, some intimate partnership, that's true overall. Mm -hmm. You know, we just talked about this in our last episode. And um, one of the conversations we had is why is it that women are scared to say no or don't say no in rape situations? And this is an example that not every man is going to respond well. And in your to case, any rejection. to yeah. any rejection. Yeah. And, and in your case, I mean, this was like an extreme <clears throat> version, but it is something that happens to women. Right. Oh, all the time. All the time. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to say that rape is all the time. No. It certainly is much more frequent than is reported or than we know. Mm-hmm. And it's way too frequent, even in terms of what we know. But... Yes, it's extremely difficult for women to react in a profoundly um, either violent way or where no is, you know, totally persistent because at some point we have to determine, is my life more important to me or my body? Mm-hmm. And most of us determine that our lives are more important. Well, and that was a theme in your book, too. So, like, there was a constant threat because you stayed with this man for a while. And many times you had to kind of choose your life over your body with this partner because you did eventually marry him, correct? I did marry him because, and I think this is important for people to understand yeah, please in order do. to understand the book, is that. He threatened not only to kill me, but also to kill my farm family. 
So this this actually and happened after he tried to kill you. Yes. So he tries yes. to kill you, and then you. But then he threatened I, to kill her family. And then yeah. I found a way to get wow. to the police and stopped that. But he threatened to kill my family, and I wow. knew that he could. After he tried to kill me, I realized he was very capable of murder. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um. So. So you were, I was I, I, not at liberty to leave because leaving could have started that cycle in motion where even if I could escape, he could find my family and kill them. Right. So you were, uh, for clarification for my part, uh, Mennonites, are, do they live in uh, secluded communities like the Amish do? Is that... Not necessarily, not as secluded, although it can be quite secluded. And they are kind of, um, shall we say, sisters with the Amish community in that their theology is very similar. Mm -hmm. What is different is the degree of strictness. Mm -hmm. But both have a high value upon nonviolence. And staying at least to some degree separate from the world and living simple lives. So about how big was the community you were a part of? Well, the town that I lived close to was about a thousand people mm-hmm. um, at the time, but I lived in the country, which makes, which was very different. If you know, to live on a farm, and particularly a farm like ours was, we were very isolated, mm-hmm. even from the rest of the Mennonite community, except for our immediate relatives. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this man, what was his name? That you married? Uh, Ron. Ron. Is so, the name, it, that's his um, given name by me. Right. <laughs> right. So he, he was a part of your Mennonite community, correct? No, you, no. No, he was not. He was from a neighboring community. from a neighboring community. Okay. Yeah. How did growing up Mennonite affect the way you viewed sex? Was it? Well, I certainly viewed it um, as I believed that scripture talked about it, which was that sex was sacred and that it should only come after marriage and that um, a woman should be very careful to never have sex until it was the appropriate time. Mm -hmm. I believe that I didn't necessarily follow that entirely faithfully. And, um, and so I had a great deal of shame that came with sexual experience. Have you changed it all since then in terms of your religious views? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Tell us how you've changed. <laughs> so you're Unitarian now, from yes. what I hear. <laughs> um, I'm Unitarian, and I'm Unitarian in part because Unitarian is in some some ways post-Christian mm-hmm. in that it's inclusive of Christianity. It's, it's historically based within Christianity, mm-hmm. but it expands belief so that no one is given a creed of what they have to believe or not believe. Mm -hmm. In fact, 
what is really honored in Unitarian Universalism is the spiritual journey. That is seen as quote unquote sacred. If there's anything that is sacred in our in our Unitarian belief system, um, and a belief system is not even quite the right word, but principles we do have, and so these principles are basically based on. Um, principles of love and the way that that can be acted out responsibly within our lives and our communities and our world. Um, So Unitarians honor that people can come to believe from their own belief systems very different things. Okay, so it gives kind of a freedom of expression and discernment. You're not forced to follow a narrow path. Correct. Not not the path of any particular religion. Not Christianity, not Buddhism, not Jewish faith, not Muslim faith. You know, it can be inclusive of all of those, but not excluded. Exclusive of those. Okay. So, um... Your relationships as a young child, do you think those changed how you view relationships as an adult growing up in that community versus now as an adult? You're saying my relationships? Your early relationships with your parents and family. We talked about this earlier. (laughs) You should have just skipped the question. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) You know, I would say that my early relationships were definitely formative for me. And I was so lucky that I had loving parents and a loving family. And some of that is that they were Mennonite. And so both my mother and my father were very focused on having a family and loving their kids and being present to them, partly because we lived on a farm. My dad did farming and he was in that way home a lot of the time. So I had two active parents in my early childhood. My mom became ill and so um, she became progressively less capable of mothering. But early on, I think I was raised in a loving environment and I am deeply grateful for that. And I think that does inform still the ways in which I relate to others and to some extent to myself too. And you think that other people have this similar experience that like the relationships that we have as children can really affect our relationships as adults. Definitely. Oh my goodness. Yeah, definitely. In what ways? Well, I would say that our brains are forming um, very significantly the first seven years of our lives, the neuronal connections are profoundly laid into a pattern by the time we are eight years old, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so language before age seven or eight is much easier to learn. Um, And our template for relationships is 
created, and I don't know if this is how much of this is genetic evolutionary formation and how much is from our early uh, formation with our parents, but it's very much become a template in our brains early on, and I don't know what would be you know, the cutoff age, but I would think by seven or eight, it's definitely there. And probably by three or four, a lot of that groundwork is laid. So the, the relational template, the way in which we are pre-programmed to operate within relationships is set up by that first relationship. So if you had a really strong relationship, then you're going to be able, so if you had a really strong relationship, then you'll be able to attach well with relationships later on. In fact, actually, you know, I'll see this with my couples, basically, you know, what they learned from childhood in terms of how parents show affection, even towards each other and their kids is it it kind of transfers into their adult relationships because suddenly, you know, like for for, for kids who grew up in relationships where there was no touch and no affection, then they grow into adults that actually struggle to show touch and affection to their partners. Mm-hmm. So let's get back to your... That your... is so true. And I just wanted to say that I, as a therapist, sure also there. see that. Yeah. I mean, I think us therapists know that in, in profound ways. So uh, let's get back to your story a little bit. You were... Um, how old when you got married to this man? 17. So you were 17 years old. He had threatened to uh-huh. kill your whole family. Uh-huh. And then you're married now. What's that experience yes. like being married to somebody who tried to kill you and threatened to kill your entire family? Horrific. It's horrific. <laughs> Not only was I married, but I went through um, a confession Um, in order to get married in the church, in my community, the only community that I knew and all the people that I knew were a part of that, in essence, all I'm saying, almost all were a part of that community. Mm -hmm. And so to confess publicly was intensely humiliating. And I confessed that I had sex before marriage and that I was therefore I had lost my way and wasn't strong enough to walk the straight and narrow and had to rely on God's grace in order to come back to the fold and be forgiven. Just want to point out that a lot of people lose their way when it comes to sex. It's actually kind of rare, even when people make the plan. (laughs) <laughs> that that that's crazy oh, thank to me you, that, Angela, that is so true. <laughs> yeah everybody likes sex it's so crazy to me that that people have this need to force people to publicly shame themselves yeah like, it's like it's weird if i if i'm gonna live my life i'm gonna live my life how i want and it's none of your business well you know what's like, crazy about it i actually see when people are successful at it that i i usually there's a reason why they're successful at abstinence like they shut down their desire or like mm-hmm. they're gay and they're marrying okay. a straight relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> like usually right. if you're just going with your human instincts people can't keep their hands off each other <laughs> and so if you are <laughs> If they do, there's usually some element of something that shows up later in the relationship. They've been broken somehow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. 
And I think we need to recognize that evolution, the way in which all species evolved, was by putting sex front and first yeah, and primary. That's how we reproduce. Yeah, of course. That's how we reproduce. Yeah. Evolution is all about reproduction. It's not about and shame. So it's all about sex. For so we should mammals, just have sex it's shamelessly. All about sex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, makes sense to me. So, so you I mean, po- look at- So you had to go in there and publicly shame yourself to your community to get yes. married. Yep. How did and that feel? I, and then I had to marry the person I most did not want to marry in the entire world. <laughs> and was was so. that was that a part of the public confession about the things that were going on with him or well, he just stood up there with me. It wasn't really a confession for him. Right. Okay. So then you get married. Was it a big ceremony? Yes. And... No, it was just my little church, basically, yeah. and immediate relatives. And, then... and um, I get married, and I just am so embarrassed and ashamed, and I go into a significant depression, I will mm-hmm. say that. It is just more than I can handle. Yeah. But I get married, of course, because I'm pregnant and then need to get ready for a baby. Right. And, uh, yeah. And so, how did the marriage go? Were there troubles <laughs> the along the go. way? Yes. was actually there even before my marriage and that meant that I couldn't leave the house without permission or the apartment without his permission and um, everything I could not object if he wanted to do something that was the law of the land and he perceived that to be uh, appropriate within the teachings of of the gospels mm-hmm. and so you were a hundred percent under his thumb. Be. I was a hundred percent, yes. And as long as I could be compliant enough and not object or or whatever, um, and keep him fairly calm, he was not violent in the early days of the marriage. But as time went on, he became more and and more violent until I was quite certain that he would kill me and possibly kill my son, Hmm. our son, with me. And did did he ever try? Yes. Yes, definitely. And and there were numerous instances, which the book talks about, Mm -hmm. where I had to find um, creative ways, shall we say, to get away from him. Yeah. And in that process, I discovered how incredibly gullible human beings are <laughs> for a story, <laughs> for a story we would like to believe. Mm-hmm. I think that comes from evolution. And uh, so what, what story are you referring to? I'm I'm referring to a story that I told Ron in order to make him not kill me. What was the story? <laughs> well, <laughs> it was about my ability to love him again and come back to him. Mm-hmm. 
but it was much more creative than that. So um, we can read the book for that. But the gullibility was a pretty profound awareness that also helped me understand how we as people can believe things that defy reality very easily. And thus, we have things like religion in our world. Now, I am not making an argument to say that God does or does not exist. What I am saying is that from an experience near perspective, that is how human beings actually experience their own lives and how we perceive that, um, particularly we as therapists who are constantly observing human experience, we can have a sense of what life is about from that perspective. And from that perspective, we can see that human beings are very prone to believing things that have no basis in reality. Mm-hmm. And many times we believe it so strongly that we will base our entire existence on those premises. You know, I have a fun story about this, actually. So I work with couples a lot. And we always say there's his story, his story, her story and our story. And it it reminds me of perspective, you know, like you'll talk to this couple and they'll each tell you a completely different story that frames each of them in a really great light and their partners as horrible people. (laughs) And as they are. And it's interesting because they'll, they'll hold on to those truths and those truths kind of get in the way of them being happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. People will shoot themselves in the foot. (laughs) They get very much in the way of them being happy. And, and there's power struggles within those stories. Mm -hmm. Incredible power struggles. And, Um, intimacy is often, it becomes something that we can't achieve because those stories block entry. Mm -hmm. Which is why it's so interesting that like, if you just kind of start pointing people down the path of changing their perspective, they'll oddly change their behavior towards their partner. Like I get couples starting to like look for that positive or think of the positive. And then it's weird. Uh Josh, Uh (laughs) it's weird because... Um, you know, like then suddenly them changing that perspective starts to change the very specific actions they're taking towards their, their, um, partners. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We are governed by those stories in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It's quite amazing. (laughs) At least that's what I see. So going through all this story that happens in your book, how did that change your view on relationships Uh, going forward as an adult? I think I became much more aware of the need to question. Mm -hmm. Question what what different relational patterns mean and when intimacy is going to be able to be achieved and when it's not. And... And when I say intimacy, I certainly don't mean only sex. I mean real 
partner sharing the depth of their beings with each other in vulnerable ways. Um, so it definitely changed that. And, um, and I learned all, a lot of the things that make relationships very dysfunctional because I lived in those things. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other thing that I, I would want to say about that is something that comes from understanding early childhood development. And I know you all are right on that because you've got a three-year-old, right? Yes, correct. And it's such a darling time. You know, it's it such is. a great time. Um, but all of life, I think, is predicated upon those early childhood relationships that we have and particular intimacy and sexuality are. If you think about what it means when you first bring home the baby from the hospital and what you have in many instances, I mean, we're preconditioned to adore littleness, you know, <laughs> yeah. the little lambs, the little pigs, the little kids, the mm -hmm. little everything, right. <laughs> um, the, the youth, uh, the youngness and the innocence of little creatures. So we adore them and we look in their eyes and babies drink in who they are when they are nursing and look in the mother's eyes or fed and look in the father's eyes and see the kind of window to the soul love that comes through those eyes and from those eyes they begin to have a sense of this is me this is this is who I am I am loved mm -hmm. I am a part of this family with these people I am becoming more fully human as I know myself to be human with this group I'm always trying and to work on being human <laughs> me too <laughs> I also am human <laughs> oh that's what we tell the humans no, anyways Josh, really not. <laughs> oh no she found out my secret <laughs> we're robot. actually secretly robots <laughs> Robot. oh golly you know and it is true humans are hilarious in the way we operate and with such complexity because our brains are so dadgum complex and mm -hmm. we happen to have consciousness, which really throws us off sometimes. Oh, yeah, that darn prefrontal cortex. <laughs> Wait, other people are conscious too? Yeah, well, because our that. prefrontal cortex is enlarged, we have this sense of who am I and what do I mean in this world? Whereas dogs probably don't have that same experience. They're like, where should I poop? That's all they think about. Whatever am I going to eat? Where am I going to poop? Done. But we still have that animal instinct brain as well. And so I think they're competing at times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Many, yes, many times. So, we are we are predisposed to, to divisions against different parts of ourselves within ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. So you became a therapist. Do you think your early... Uh, your early adulthood with all this chaos uh, led you towards being a therapist? I do, because when I was in uh, undergraduate, 
I I really started to wonder how do you change human behavior and what is human behavior about and how does the mind function that makes us operate in the ways we do and particularly of course I was thinking about Ron and so those questions led me to start in psychology and very soon add philosophy to that uh, mixture. Mm-hmm. And eventually I added theology to that because I actually became a minister the old-fashioned way and went to seminary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the next thing you should pick up is economics, actually, microeconomics. That's an interesting study of human behavior. <laughs> <laughs> Just no learn it kidding. all. Yep. Yep. <laughs> what, what are you thinking of in specific when you say microeconomics? Well, so there's this book I've been reading, Super Freakonomics, and it's microeconomics. It's the it's the how people make choices and how people are actually bad at um like they think they want to change, but they're actually bad at change. And the easiest changes are made uh-huh. when it's simple and cheap. Right. That's the most likely when things are going to happen. Oh wait, so people <laughs> will only do things when it's easy. Yes. Yeah, oh, I yes. know that. Or... We're we're such creatures of habit that we will stick to those old behaviors more than new ones, even when the new it's ones appear better for us. Everybody is lazy. Yes. You want to do the easiest thing. Yeah, we're efficient. Yeah. That's that's the uh, reframe yeah. to that right. is efficiency. Efficient, exactly. Efficient. I am so efficient. <laughs> I'm efficient every day. All day long. I never stop with my efficiency. <laughs> you know, my example of that is how difficult it has been for human beings to learn to floss. Floss? Floss. Your teeth? Floss. Floss your teeth. Because many of us grew up before flossing was really a thing. Yeah. And so brushing, you know, we can do that. But to take on that extra three, it's not even three minutes, maybe Mm -hmm. minute and a half per (laughs) evening of flossing is somehow extremely difficult for us to do. It is. And here's the thing. There's. No research actually that backs up that flossing actually does any positives. So that has never actually been done. No research. And second of all, it is Josh has a big platform for you, floss. The difference okay. the difference okay, between brushing it. your teeth and flossing, what makes it so difficult is you have to stick your fingers in your mouth and get all in there and it's yeah. gross and it, there's blood everywhere. It's just not the same. No floss. It's a lot it's a lot more intense than just brushing your teeth. That's Josh. No floss 2020. It's his platform. <laughs> I, I do not floss every day. That is totally true. No, uh, I understand. Like, you do floss, but I can only get him to do it about once a month. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I haven't been bleeding from the gums in a good while. I guess it's time. <laughs> Oh, you all are too funny. Now, see, these are secrets that are sometimes more deeply held than sex. Flossing? (laughs) I wonder how we can incorporate floss and sex. There you go. I I don't know. That would be quite the combination, don't you? There's already enough blood. Like, you don't need... Not... (laughs) (laughs) Who are you having sex with? No, I'm (laughs) flossing. Also, maybe we should talk a little bit about sex. So how have, you know, there's, you have a few questions on there about sex. Um, 
how how have your views about sex changed now that you've you know now, now that you are who you are now? <laughs> that was a weird question. Yeah. How do you sex? How do you sex? <laughs> one one of the things that has really changed, or I guess maybe gotten more complex for me. Mm-hmm. I think, first of all, it was so difficult for me to discern what is the difference between sex that was consensual within me, just I'm just talking about within me, that was truly consensual, that was, wow, I, I'm doing this because I love this, I want this, this is great. Right. And, you know, early on, this is, you know, in my, my um, early 20s, and wondering, am I feeling somehow compelled because this person helped me in this way or helped me in that way? And those were the days, of course, of, of free love. And so we, as a culture, were asking, what is the role of sex? And should we have group sex? You know, um, I forget what that's called now. (laughs) Some version of consensual non-monogamy. Yeah, polyamory. Consensual non-monogamy or polyamory or open relationships. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, but th- those—that's more now in mm-hmm. this day and age. But then right. it was called something else. Yeah, in they my called it free love or swinging or, or hippies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I hear they have hippies back then. Yeah, there's another there's <laughs> another word, but that's okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, those were days where we really were as a culture asking what should the role of sex be mm-hmm. in our lives. And one of the things that I, I discovered that was alarming to me is the number of times and ways in which women were propositioned, in which we were asked, in essence, to become prostitutes, not for money, but to prostitute ourselves for other reasons. Maybe because that would give us the approval from men, which was so important in those days before feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, But more importantly, just the asking, like I was poor when I lived in Boston and had a young child. And I remember I would hitchhike or thumb my way down the street often to take my son to his daycare or his his kindergarten. Um, And many times I would be picked up by older single men, like 60 and above. And of course, at that point, when I was in my early 20s, that seemed ancient to me. (laughs) And their skin was wrinkled and their (laughs) middles were big. And and they would proposition me just because they knew I was poor and vulnerable because I was thumbing with a child. Mm -hmm. And fortunately they were not violent with me, but they would all talk about, and I mean time after time after time again, Oh, my wife is frigid. That's the word that they used in those days. (laughs) And, um, and I really need help. And I really would love for you to be 
um, in a relationship with me in that way. And I could help you financially and, and I could be of service to you in other ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it was constant, that kind of proposition. Yeah. Um, but also when I needed professional help, I was propositioned by the attorney that I asked for a pro mm-hmm. bono favor from. Yeah. And, you know, it just was all over the place. And I thought that was the most peculiar thing I'd ever heard of. But when I look at the proportion of money in this country that is spent on, you know, on sex, <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't seem that out of proportion. No. I think we are that way. We are driven, mm-hmm. you know, and we understand this now from evolutionary sources. Uh-huh. We are driven. The animal part of us is very much alive. Oh, yeah. And the need for love, which comes from that early childhood relationship, is very much alive. And both of those forces move us in the direction of sex and love intimacy those are perhaps i would say the most profound forces within human life so you're saying we all just want to be loved <laughs> and have sex we do <laughs> yeah. i mean look at the music industry and all the songs about love and relationship and sex mm-hmm. and gender issues and you know sure I even oh, look back just, at my decision to become I even look at my decision to become a sex therapist and some part of it was a business decision because mm-hmm. even in therapy sex sells. <laughs> yeah. And like yes, you were does. saying that about it music does. but like music overall even the ones that aren't about sex are still about relationships because it's yeah. about abuse, yes. it's about rape, it's about feeling ostracized uh-huh. and not being accepted and infidelity. And, yeah. Like that's <laughs> yeah. all music is about. It's about the experience uh-huh. of being a human and trying to find love and affection. Mm-hmm. That's it. And that is, in essence, I think, the definition of being human. We have a profoundly huge social aspect of our brains, Mm -hmm. and we have to satisfy that one way or another in our human dimensions. And we would not be human without that social dimension overall in our brains. It's what made us develop cognitively and is actually how we survived because we are not really that big and strong compared to other animals and we don't run that fast and we don't have that big fur that protects us from the cold. Well, speak for yourself, Leona. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah, Angela was known as Furry Murray. I was, I was, but not, not actually that hairy. I just think it was a funny thing to rhyme. Your family has such big hair. What are you talking well, about? Oh, yeah, we do have big hair. Have That's hair, true. You have big curls everywhere. So true. <laughs> you definitely have a mane. Mm-hmm. I stand corrected. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm a lioness. It's true. <laughs> you got another one? So right. here we go with the cognitive development that happened out of our, I guess, both came together, the sociality and the cognitive development of our brains that made humans who we are. Mm-hmm. So I have another question for you. Um, 
you said um, you said that you've kind of got some ideas about the Me Too movement, and so I'm really curious what your perspectives are on what's going on in our culture right now with um, women and consent and, I don't know, everybody just trying to figure out what to do next. Yeah, they're kind of putting it out in the open now, finally. I am thrilled <laughs> that that is happening. That has so needed to happen, and I think it's another wave of feminism that desperately needs to, that our culture is in total need of. <laughs> yeah. And that's just, that's my vision for who we are as human beings and who we need to be. Um, and I do also want to say that I think in the long run, while women need to be believed and while it is proving the rational thing to do to believe women because the more we find out the more we realize that the vast majority of time women are telling the truth when they talk about rape or when they talk about abuse or when they talk about um, ways in which men have lorded power over them for sexual purposes, for sexual gain. I think all of that is very important, not just that we say women are speaking the truth, but that we say science proves, evidence proves that women should be believed first, but not that that belief should go untested. Mm -hmm. Evidence needs to be gathered. Nobody should be um, condemned without evidence or mm -hmm. judged or punished or whatever without evidence. So while we know that the bulk of evidence in a um, global way, a societal way, is that women speak the truth when they talk about abuse in the workplace or abuse, um, you know, rape, whatever, abuse in marriage. They are most likely speaking the truth. That is evidential. Right. But you have to believe them. Um, but on an individual basis, there still needs to be evidence that can be manifest so that people are not, um, either women or men, accused and, and, um, and judged and criminalized, especially without evidence. Right. So you're so, starting two new podcasts. you uh, you told us. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about them? You're starting two podcasts. It's like I'm starting two. Yes. It's a lot of work and to start one, but two. <laughs> oh. Let's let's bite off a lot more than we can eat. There. Go ahead. That's right. You are absolutely right because I had no idea. I'm so you know I was so naive when I said okay I'm going to do two mm -hmm. because. I, there is such a technology issue here, and I am not a technology person. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying really hard to learn this stuff. Yeah. But the podcasts themselves are fascinating, at least to a person like me. Sure. I love them. And the people that I interview are so fascinating. So what are the two podcasts about? 
What are the one topics? One of them is coffee time with a minister. Cool. And the other one is me too and more. Okay. And both of those themes are run throughout my book in a, in a larger sense, mm-hmm. um, in a narrative story form in my book. And now with the podcasts, it's in interviews where I am talking with, for example, ministers and helping ministers really become real as just ordinary human beings so they can they can have some way of being true without being put on a pedestal and being in a scary position of oh my god what if I do the wrong thing and fall off of this and they're just ordinary human beings like all of us are and they you know they live this often a double life because people project onto them that they're better because they have this special thing called faith, supposedly anyway. And so it's double jeopardy for them. Hmm. And not only that, people who have, people have a lot of projections, including a lot of needs, their own needs for particular beliefs that are projected onto pastors. So, pastors are often in a position of feeling the draw from that congregant who needs them to say, yes, I believe that also, or I think it's that way too. Or, you know, clearly the Bible says this and this and this, just exactly what you're saying. That is being drawn out of ministers, and and it's very difficult for for ministers to be able to be really true about what they do or don't believe, mm-hmm. or how their beliefs change over time, and um, and all of our beliefs change over time. Yeah. Um, I certainly don't believe the same things that I believed when I was fifteen, and um, one and would hope you took the new information. Life, beliefs have changed inside of me. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's part of the conversation that I'm hoping to have with more and more ministers, whether they're ministers within a congregation or people who have specialized ministries, as I have, which is maybe as a, a teacher or um, you know a social justice worker or community. Um, somebody who has their ministry within the community in some specialized way. All right, Leona. So it's both. All right, Leona, we just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show. And I just wanted to restate, so you're Leona Stuckey, and you wrote the book, The Fog of Faith, Surviving My Impotent God. Is there a website people can find you at, Leona? Yes, www.leonastuckey, that's L-E-O-N-A, S as in Sam, T-U-C-K-Y dot com. LeonaStuckey.com. And if you want to be on my podcast, please go there and sign up. Okay, sounds good. And of course, I always put in my plug, I have the book, Helping Couples Overcome Infidelity, A 